Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact, but so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvelous. Four, three, two, one. Lift off. We have a lift Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few Podcast uh, with me, Boo. And the perennial ageless drinker of the fountain of youth, Sean, Sean Still. Hey, Sean, how are you, mate? Great, boo. Great, boo. Yeah, it's all, all good up here, mate. And um, it'd be good one day when we actually can do a uh, podcast in person. That would be awesome. But uh, in this day and age, we just need to uh, keep using the wonders of modern technology. I'm glad you got your camera working too. That was a little bit of a hiccup at the start, but all good. You need to talk to your premier. I mean, we've got to figure out how COVID works. I mean, we can't keep having all of these walls and boundaries and uh, changing rules in terms of who can speak to what and say whatever. I mean, we, man, I, I can't believe it. I mean, actually, we've done pretty well. We've done a few podcasts now. We haven't even mentioned the C word. But when, when's it going to happen? When are we going to see life as normal, a life without isolation? Uh, who knows? At this point, who knows? You know, if, if we need to have uh, people need to have more vaccinations or more or something different, but I'm sure the uh, the premiers will still make their decisions to to close the borders, particularly uh, here in Queensland. Trigger finger on that one. So crazy, <laughs> anyway, crazy, crazy. We digress. Well, well, we kind of digress, but at the same time, we kind of created a nice segue there because we're our guest today knows a little bit about isolation and and had to explore what isolation would look like in a one way trip to mars and no doubt with that on your resume or on the horizon you're probably going to come at life from a different perspective Uh, she's also a bit of a guru in sustainability and uh, and a warrior against waste so with no further ado let's welcome her to the few podcasts today diane mcgrath thanks so much for joining sean and i Uh, thanks boo thanks sean for those who are wondering which border i'm in at the moment i'm in the act so uh tiny little hole a little bit um, isolated as well especially when we had our lockdowns we couldn't even go 10k because it would take us into new south wales oh yes it wouldn't it would have so was that similar to the, the training for mars though like it was it is that isolating <laughs> or very similar <laughs> i ended up having to quarantine i had to quarantine at one stage during uh, iso because uh, i had been inadvertently like days before lockdown just at a venue that someone else had been who was positive and and yep, so there I was locked in my bedroom for yeah for more than long enough. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, yeah, Boo started with the with the you know the kicker here, the um, this concept about uh, you know a one way trip to Mars. I mean, I'm intrigued. I'm a bit of a nerd. I love watching what uh, Elon Musk's doing with SpaceX and seeing Richard Branson float float in his you know thing <laughs> and the moving Mar- moving Martian. That's it. So um, <laughs> tell us a bit of the story. I mean, there's, there's obviously something to this. It sounds great. Yeah, it's, well, uh, many people probably aware that I was one of the people that signed up to go one way to Mars. So Mars One, a not-for-profit organisation based in the Netherlands, set up like 10 years ago now. They started their, I guess, their foundation to try and get people to Mars. And their idea, the whole premise was one way. It was going to work one, one way much more realistically and sustainably and affordably than a return journey. It's just a bit 
left of center of what you'd think about you'd normally do. So, but so you talk about that for a second, Diane. I mean, what what's their journey like? Like contemplating the isolation and having to hang out with the same people forever. Don't people get married? <laughs> oh no, they get divorced then too, don't they? <laughs> And you could potentially replace that person, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Once you're on Mars, you're stuck on Mars. There's no going back. Uh, but but I mean, that's the the whole premise of Mars One was was to send Cruiser Four every two years from 2031 onwards, and and thus you know we were going to be all going one way in in very small crews with the same people until the next crew came two years later, and then the B eight and the B twelve, etc. That's if the original four were still didn't kill each other in that time, I suppose. <laughs> well, the the whole concept as well with Mars One was that they would go through the crews would go through ten years of training together first. So yeah, yeah, live together, train together, everything. So you'd be tighter than a family. You'd yeah, be yeah. this whole new unit that's completely one hundred percent reliant on each other for survival. And it's a it's a shame that Mars One uh, ended up having to close their doors um, of recent times because it was something that's been an amazing part of my life as a, as a candidate for that and to to get through with their selection process to the final hundred worldwide it was originally over two hundred thousand. Um, I'm still friends with them. Uh, we still keep in touch, all hundred of us. And did you say out of two hundred thousand people? Yeah, there's two hundred thousand people that want to go to another planet and never come back. Yes, that's correct. Can I pick them? Can we can we pick them? <laughs> well, actually, it's a funny point you make there because there's an aspect of self-selection in this anyway, right? So who would sign up to go one way to Mars? You know, just poll your mates when you go to the next barbecue or whatever or, or Friday drinks or now that we can all get into vaguely social context again, would you go one way to Mars? You'll find a few people will raise their hands and others will go, you've got to be joking. Um, <laughs> but, but so you've got a bit of self-selection at the start with people who are of a particular mindset. Then as you're going through the selection process, what Mars One had us do was really start to hone down, not just not on our skills but on our qualities. They were looking for people who were adaptable and resilient curious but had to be creative as well because i mean the whole concept there's there's no backup or support when you're on mars you've got to solve it all yourselves you've got to help each other completely yourselves so they really did a lot of work in trimming us down to the hundred and i feel very comfortable if i, if I ever did have to go and live somewhere in a box <laughs> without being able to go outside and breathe like your uh, with any of those folks <laughs> get out of my bedroom yeah <laughs> there'd have to be a lot of work around ego in, in an environment like that, I mean, I couldn't imagine a, an environment where you'd need to be more selfless than doing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and while obviously looking after your health, the mental well-being as an individual is critical, it's not just critical for you; it's critical for that team. Because whatever you do for you is for everyone else. What, what was it was driving you to like seriously consider that? I, I'm just really curious. Like, what what, what is it that What's the thought process that goes into that? <laughs> this is one of those common answers, <laughs> questions Sorry, I get answered, Sean. A lot of people want to know, why? Why on earth would you do this? One answer is, you know, there's sustainability and I want to make a better place for society and all of this. And that's a really big part of it for me because if we could show that we could live on another planet and have to be 100% reliant on solar, for example, um, we had to recycle everything, there was no resupply, Everything's 100% renewable, the works, food, secure, closed system, everything. Then we're going to have to learn all of those systems and develop that tech here on Earth first, 
prototype it, build it up, et cetera, before we send it to Mars. Because you're not going to send stuff there that hasn't been proven. You're going to pilot test it here. So I thought, wow, we had the opportunity to even turn this into Earth 2.0 just by trying to get to Mars. What a phenomenal thing. What a legacy. And then there's my other answer, which I might say in a bit more relaxed environment, which is, why not? (laughs) Why not? not? (laughs) What an amazing thing to do in life, to, to go and, well, for me, it would be retire, retire on another planet. Don't have to worry about you know, ever earning an income again. <laughs> There's no mortgage to pay. Into- conceptually, some people do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what can we learn about that? Like, I think uh, Sean's a big believer in showing up and, and commitment. And, you know, we live in a world where everything moves quickly and everything's disposable. And, like, you would have to have a mindset shift there and some really deep thinking about sustainability, commitment, what can the rest of the world learn about the journey that you went on? Yeah, I mean, actually, I've got an interesting story to tell you about the commitment and sustainability part. A few years ago, I was was curious to understand whether I could live without bringing any new plastic into my life for a year. So I spent an entire year not purchasing anything with any plastic, not accepting anything with plastic on it, nothing, zero. And it was a really fascinating journey because it also, what it did, and this is um, part of the the story here, um, Boo, was about it expanded the impact I had in other areas of sustainability in life. So by taking one journey towards one thing that's very focused, but really seeing what's possible with it, I ended up being able to do a heck of a lot more. I found myself recycling things I didn't realize it was were recyclable. Ended up buying food that was more local, so supporting local economies. So it it changed not just one field of behavior for me, but a broader one entirely. There must be hard though. Like what what gets sold these days without single use plastic? Yeah, well actually after well now that you know in our post COVID situation, there's a lot of single use stuff, isn't there? So I think we're, we did fall back into that for the last couple of years while we've been going through this because of plastic's got a value and a purpose in life. Don't, don't get me wrong. When plastic came out, it, it ensured that we could have safety and hygiene with our medical supplies and things of that sort of nature that are really important to us. We don't need plastic for as many of the things we do use it for. Not quite got to that extent of saying you know, remove all plastic, but this year for me, I made a I made a couple of changes in my decisions to move away predominantly, or actually fully now for about seven months away from eating meat to actually move to more of a plant based diet. We go to the the farmers market down the road every Sunday with the trolley, fill it up with stuff, and that's the one of the things I've noticed is that there's no plastic because you've got. Fresh food. I needed to buy a second fridge because of how much space it takes up, but which is and likely got solar powered. But the point is that there's no plastic anymore. It's like, oh, we've got, you know, glass jars, we've got, you know, all the other stuff. We've avoided buying plastic on purpose. And it actually wasn't that difficult. If you go to a farmer's market to buy some Brussels sprouts or something, they put them in a brown paper bag or just put them straight into your your green shopping bag because you're going to wash them before you use them anyway, you know, and it was like you don't need these plastic bags that come on a roll or there's a lot less of the of the, that stuff that I've even noticed. As you said, it's made a difference not only in that but in, in changing what I'm eating, it's actually changing the environmental impact I'm actually having now and I'm now teaching that to my kids and they're now starting to eat this, some more similar stuff, which means that by changing one thing, it's changed a number of others as an unintended consequence in a positive way. Mm. Absolutely, and it's sort of like the way that the the way that the Earth 
spins on its axis, we get really cool stuff such as, you know, not just night and day, but when it works in conjunction with how the, the moon is, is moving through its orbit as well, we'll get different shifts in tidal currents. Really cool stuff just because the Earth is turning. But it's not the function of why it turns, but these other really fascinating things happen just because it turns. And that's, I think this is a great example of that. I, I struggle. I think when you start getting above the stratosphere, like I used to love it and astronomy, but then your head starts to explode. Like when you genuinely try to comprehend it, it's like, boom, a billion, a billion of these things with the one sun we have. And there's a billion of those out there. I mean, I, I think uh, I take my hat off to quantum physics and space explorers. I think it's, it's uh, absolutely brilliant. And for us, you know, getting to Mars is a, is a big mission, but in the concept of the universe, what it's like, two grains of sand next to each other on a beach. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And and if it wasn't for the different interests and passions of all of us in our lives, we wouldn't have the extraordinary kaleidoscope of, of beauty in this world. So, and whether that's you know art or or the, in the business world or or even just the, the the ways that people enjoy their leisure too, it makes worth it makes worth getting up, get up in the morning. Absolutely. Touching on sustainability again, mm. one of the things that came up when I was reading the background information and the things that you you know that you've done and the things you stand for and stuff is is a question that came for me is how bad is this problem of waste you know and with a, of of wasting food of wasting perfectly good and maybe not so good but but of of the way that we do things and how much waste is created from that yeah well, food waste you know I could go on for hours about this Sean I won't. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it is a big problem, but a lot of people don't realise they're wasting food and they, they estimate that in Australia, in our households, we throw away roughly the equivalent of one shopping bag in five wow. worth of food. So I don't know how much any of your listeners buy each week in their groceries, but you can imagine just popping one of those bags just straight in the bin. It would be, you think about how much money you spend on that, but that's just not just wasteful, but what a lost opportunity you know, lost nutrition. It is, especially when there's so many people who are hungry in Australia. Like it's a, um, during COVID as well, we had more people reach out for food relief from the food rescue organisations than ever before. And in fact, most of those that went through, like, I think it was nearly nearly 30% of people that went for food relief this year just gone the first time they ever had to go for it. So it's, we've got a lot of food thrown away and at the same time, people who need it. So we've got a bit of a disconnect here, but some of it's, there's a lot of reasons why it happens. You know, sometimes you go to the shops and they'll sell you something in a pack of 50 and you only want three. There's lots of packet, the labelling of things. What date is that? I'm not sure. I better throw it out anyway. It could be fine, but I don't know. I don't risk it. Heaps of reasons, heaps of reasons. But there's also heaps of easy ways to reduce it. I mean, I'm sure yourself, Sean, in the journey you've been taking in going to the local you know, farmer's markets, there's probably heaps of things you've been doing that have shown that some of those food lasts heaps longer. Absolutely, especially when you buy it fresh and it's not been in a truck and then in a storeroom and then on another truck and then sitting out at, at, you know, in the supermarket on the shelf there for a while and it'll last two or three times as long. Food's become fuel though, right? Like if you look at the world in terms of how we now approach productivity, we seem to have lost the uh, the passion or the art that comes with food. And Diane, you said that what impacted you was you were flying and you saw after meal service just everything, eaten or not, just go straight into the rubbish. 
I sort of jokingly call it snacks on a plane was my inspiration. So, you know, sitting on exactly that flight from Melbourne to Adelaide. No, I was going to Sydney at the time and the airline was was exactly doing that. They were handing out the trays with food. And I thought, oh, I don't feel terribly hungry this morning. I'll grab something and I might eat it later. Just I know they say, don't take it off the plane with you. I was like, I'll just put that in my bag. But I was watching everyone else and I thought, oh, I bet you half of these people won't eat that. And then I wondered what? What happens to that? Surely it's perfect. And it's usually always individually packed too, right? You know, a little packet of this, a box of that. Um, and then the heavens opened up and this, the in-flight magazine that I read, on that same flight there's an article with Ronnie Kahn from Oz Harvest. And it's like, whoa, we should be donating this stuff. Why aren't we donating this stuff? I wonder what happens. And so this whole journey started for me and that was nearly 10 years ago now and ever since then I've been doing stuff in this sort of space to see how can we prevent this going to waste. Such a big impact, Diane. You actually went out and, and knocked out a PhD on it, right? <laughs> I did. I'm now Dr. Di. <laughs> it's not something I ever expected to be doing, working in waste. A waste doctor. Yeah. Waste doctor. Be nice if it was W-A-I-S-T. I'd be a health and fitness <laughs> guru, but I'm not. I'm a food waste guru. And so that's this, this area, though, everybody loves food in some capacity. And while... I recognise, you know, Boo, what you said about it being fuel to some people. It really is. Some people just do see food as fuel. Functionally, it has nutrition, it has carbohydrates, protein, fats, et cetera, et cetera. But what is it that we enjoy the most about food is when we socialise with other people, when we connect with the farmer's markets, the people that grew it, when we sit down around a table and enjoy a meal together or go out what a novelty is that without a mask on uh, and, and eat a meal and laugh together. <laughs> food has so much more cultural value than just the fuel that it is at, at some times. And, and if we connect with that cultural aspect of stuff, that can actually help us eat more of it too and waste less. I think more of our celebrity chefs need to, to look at what we can do in that space. Like how can we creatively teach people to use some of those unusual ingredients or the, the leftovers that they don't know what to do with? This is one of the things that I've learned in uh, fairly, uh, or at this time of recording this, uh, seven months into a, a new relationship. And one of the things I've noticed from uh, my partner, she will open the fridge and I'll like open the fridge and go, oh, God, we're going to have to go to the shops. She goes, what do you mean? And then she'll knock up some amazing thing. And I'm like, and she'll use like the stalks off the broccolini because she's used the top bit for something else, keeps the stalks, mm. chops them up fine, then puts them into a risotto or something. There's no, you can tell the difference. She goes, oh, no, no, don't throw that out. Keep that. And I'm like, for what? Because normally I just, if you use the chop the top bit off, chuck the rest away. It was just like it's this whole different way of looking at the ability. And it's, a, it's, a, it's something I said I've, I have not been educated in this at all. I'd be in the negative, I reckon, if I was focusing on you know IQ when it comes to <laughs> being able to creative with food, I'd be in the negative because I'll literally open the fridge and be like, oh, there's nothing there. But she'd create a whole meal out of just the leftovers. I just, it just blew my mind. That it's, it's an education thing. That's what it is. It's an education gap. I mean, food waste is just one manifestation of human wasting stuff, right? Wasting time, yeah. wasting resources, just the litter, just the whole getting rid of plastic bags, right? Mm-hmm. Do you touch on that on that psychology at all? Oh, absolutely. Diane, and what, and what you do, like what is the psychology of, of waste and how do we reprogram ourselves? Some of that's quite cultural too, Boo. I, there's an aspect of abundance too we tend to find in Australia. So my PhD looked at food waste when we dine out, 
in particular. And the, the information that came back through my PhD is, is, was quite a bit different to what we'd seen in, in global pictures in other international research. And, and the main reason was because Australians are a bit more affluent generally. We want to see more on our plate. We expect a little bit more. We want to see what we consider to be value and don't mind leaving it then as well because it also shows I can afford to leave this. So there's, there's this whole aspect of affluence which has affected our waste. We need to make the what's left of our meal into something we consider just as valuable so that we don't let it go. We, we want to hang on to it. We want to bring it home or I'm just going to shove that last mouthful in because my great grandma made this and it's always amazing. You know, add value to it, keep the value of it and don't just let it finish with those last few bites. It's you're right. And I think that's one of the things that, that I've noticed, you know, when I was in my, my teens, we would occasionally go out for a meal or something like that. It was very rare experience. Like going to a restaurant, that was a very rare experience. I think my kids at least once a week, probably twice a week eat out at a restaurant because I love eating at restaurants. But one thing they've noticed is that the size of everything over time is, has actually become bigger. There is this, I think this, as you say, this expectation around affluence and stuff. But likewise to that, some of my favourite restaurants, which aren't necessarily the most uh, budget-conscious ones, they've kind of pulled it back and it's, it's a higher quality now. And I actually enjoy that a lot more. Realise you're so sophisticated, mate. Well, mate, it's it's been hanging around you, Boo. It's helped to polish the edges, you know, like of the rough diamond, you know. Although they can, you can polish a turd, as they say. But anyway, you know. Doesn't that just show, though, how, how value can be perceived so differently? And this is the same in any business, right, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to be right down the bottom of the market and, you know, put the cheapest price out and just keep on adding, and I'll give you this free stuff. Give a good quality product on a plate, big plate, small item, add something else around it, and you've got a much more attractive value proposition for that customer, whether that's food or something else. I think you said it yourself, Dan. It's the experience that wraps around it. Yes. If you've just got a giant meal and the experience is average, you're probably not going to remember any of it. But if you've got a, a maybe a smaller meal that's really, really nice and, you know, all that sort of stuff, good quality ingredients everything – but the experience of having that meal, that's what you're going to remember. You're going to go back to that restaurant again. And I think that's what, and that's what I've, I guess I've, one of the things I love that I missed the most when COVID first happened is I couldn't go out to a restaurant. And I love going out to a restaurant because it's that social aspect. It's that connection with other people. It's, you know, enjoying food together and conversation. And it's, you know, and particularly when you're, you know, a local smaller area like I am here in Noosa, mm. you, get, you get to know the owners of the, of the restaurant and they come and say day and they have jokes with the kids or whatever. And it's a whole experience of it. And as you said, it's not just the food. It's not just about that. And it, it doesn't need to be gigantic and big and have all this potential, potential waste, but definitely see that sort of affluence, how that affluence, you know, higher level of affluence would mean that people are more easily more wasteful because I remember you know, my parents, they had a uh, challenging, I suppose, for want of a better term, uh, a time um, in financially for, for many years there for a couple of bad business decisions. And it was, we had to count the dollars. They had to count the dollars. They had to be very, so nothing went to waste. Mm. It was a very different way of looking at things. Yeah, absolutely. As a child myself, I grew up in the Northern Territory in the Outback, which not a lot of people know this. Like, I grew up from the age of 10 to 17 in remote Aboriginal communities. Um, so I lived in the Simpson Desert first for a few years and I think it was 10 to 13 then and then 14 we lived in the sort of the the fringe camp in Alice Springs and then we lived up in the Tanami Desert for another three years. No wonder you want to go to Mars. (laughs) I know what this red dirt's like. Yeah. (laughs) done that. Isolation, some isolation. That's a very unique upbringing and and how much of that has shaped your attitudes towards culture and societies? 
Mm, oh yeah. Look, gosh, everything you do as a child shapes your perspectives, doesn't it? Even if you don't realize it for many, many years. And I think drawing on just that word you've just used then, boo, things. One of the biggest lessons I learned when I was a child in that in that region was about no one owns a thing. We share a thing. If someone's lucky enough to bring something, whether it's income or record player or whatever it is, because this was back in the 80s, so we didn't have exciting things like DVDs or whatever in those days. But if someone brought something like that into the community, it was everyone's. Everyone had the chance to use it. It sometimes would disappear from your home because someone had come to just use it for a while. Um, As a little child, the age of 10 or 11, I thought, someone's stolen my blah. But after a while, I came to realize, oh, it's not my blah. I've brought something into this community. This has enriched the community. They all get the chance to share it. So that was a phenomenal learning as a child and has definitely influenced a lot of the things I've done in life. For sure. Well, that that Mars thinking, I would presume, is exactly the same, right? Like it's this the community stuff that you all need to utilize in a way that delivers outcomes that sustain life. Yeah, absolutely. Been talking about this um, before offline as well uh, the other day that in marketing, I used to work in marketing for many years. This is concept of growing the pie. You know, when it's a competitive environment, everyone's fighting for their own slice of the pie. But if you're in an isolated environment or a small community where the, the market's only like it's this big, those other players aren't going to be around if you try and fight and get all the pie. That means you're also not going to have customers too because it's a tiny community. So the best option for all and for you is to grow the pie. So what can we bring into a community? What can we bring into a competitive environment that actually grows it and makes it sustainable for everybody? I stole that, by the way. When I was in America, I used that. I used that to try and explain to people how you partner in another country. But hey, but you're not growing your slice of the pie here. We're growing the pie, and look what happens to your slice. It happens to grow as well. So I appreciate that. That was a a nice little uh, metaphor to influence an outcome there. <laughs> look, we haven't even touched on that, Diane. You were like you're like a pretty full on serious high flying marketing exec too, right? My final formal marketing role that I had was with GSK, so GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, I was in charge of a billion-dollar portfolio of um, childhood immunisation vaccines for the world, um, and I was based in, in Europe, and I managed this huge portfolio, and uh, I bet every single one of the children you know and probably you have been jabbed by it. <laughs> so that particular role, I mean, I was in marketing for many years prior with a number of other brands as well, but looking after the portfolio that worked across just about every single country in the world was a really extraordinary experience because you you had to develop a way of storytelling and connection with the brand that could be universal but not be so single-minded. You had to allow for flexibility that recognised and allowed local input and cultural recognition, but you had to somehow find a way that you had as they say in, in France, that the field rouge, like the red line that, that runs through everything, that everything else could connect to. That's true. Yeah. And that's that's a big challenge for multinationals and some do it really well and some do it terribly. Absolutely. You, you look at, say, Nike are a great example of a brand that is consistent with, they've got their, their swoosh. It's as long as it looks the same and as long as contextually it's still demonstrating the same sort of 
outcome for that user, that user experience, to, to take your, your words there before, Sean, to really reflect that experience, why can't that be done in different cultural viewpoints? It's a good point. Like, what do you, uh, nothing to do with uh, sustainability or food waste, but what are the biggest <laughs> mistakes people make and, and business owners when it comes to their brand? Let's just make it like the top three things. <laughs> top three things, top three mistakes in, in branding. Inconsistency is probably one of them. People often want to change their brand frequently. Are you talking about a message, look, feel? Like what, what are you referring to? All of the above. Message, if you're putting out a different message every year because you're a new marketing person, because often they'll, there'll be a cycling of brand managers sometimes through a larger organisation or in the one organisation, even if it's the, the same brand manager year on year, as a brand manager or a brand owner, sometimes you get a bit bored with saying the same thing all the time. But your customers need to hear that same thing all the time because that's what's giving them assurance that you're still the same thing that I love. There's nothing different about you. I can trust you because you're consistent. So the consistency of messaging of color of your brand, as soon as you change the color of your brand, people don't notice you as much as well. You've got to be there when you don't think you need to be there. We've just come out of or coming out of lockdown and it reminds me of when, um, say, the big Pepsi and Coke wars in the Second World War, I think it was, that Coke decided to stop advertising during the latter parts of the war. They thought, oh, this is really no point. You know, people haven't got money and et cetera. Pepsi kept advertising. Who do you think had a huge market share when the world opened up again and had money? wasn't Coke. Well, Coke didn't have to worry, right? It, it just put cocaine in, in the drink and uh, marketing <laughs> looked after itself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but the, the point is that if, if you're not on, it's called the evoked set. To get on someone's evoked set, it's like when you start thinking about, oh, I want a, I want a soft drink. And so your mind goes to all the different sorts of soft drinks, Coke, Pepsi, whatever else. To get on that list, that list is called the evoked set. But if you're not being reminded that the you exist, you're going to drop off the set. Well, you know when you do a Google search and these days the top Part of your screen is all ads now. It's like, ugh, you scroll down to something that's actually useful and that's usually only about three items. To get in there is really, really hard now. And it's the same thing with your, your mental evoked set. We're constantly getting bombarded with messages to keep yep. in someone's mindset. You've got to keep putting it, put it out there. So marketing is really important. To add to that too, like you know, we're talking about the story of the, the of the war and Coke saying, "Oh, there's no point marketing at the moment." That's the what I've seen a lot of business owners fall into that trap in difficult times. Mm-hmm. Be it you know post GFC, uh, COVID and stuff. It's like, oh, there's all this stuff going on. I'm going to lean back. Mm-hmm. I'm going to step back from marketing and from promoting. And I think it's the worst thing you can do. The people that I've seen that have actually doubled down have taken market share off those people that have backed out, like you said, Pepsi did, is because you're staying front of mind when the person has the money again, you're now at the top of that evoke list, bang, that they will buy your product and not the other one. Yep. And I think that's the thing that the particularly small business owners are, are making mistakes and even the bigger ones is, you, you, if anything, double down while everyone else's baits out of the water when they've gone home and packed up their fishing gear, well, put more lines in, yeah. you know, because you're, you're much more likely to catch catch the fish then. Yeah, and I took that sort of personal philosophy to my life during COVID lockdown last year. I was in Melbourne and at the time I lived in a tiny studio apartment. I never, I had no balcony, nothing. I really was living in a box for that our extraordinary lockdown last year in Melbourne. Horrendous. Anyway, but 
practice in Mars. Like you did your Mars training. So <laughs> I've done quite a bit of isolation training. So <laughs> some aspects are like, oh, I've been there, done that. But but with this one, I, I thought, well, and Mars One was pretty quiet at the time. They were like, oh, well, we, it's COVID. No one's investing on anything at the moment. So we're really finding it hard to bring all of you guys together because the next stage of selection was they were supposed to bring all 100 of us together to go through this final stage of selection to trim us down to those who would be trained to go. Uh, and I thought, well, Mars One's on pause. All these other companies are on pause. I don't have to go on pause just because they are. In fact, I didn't. I did exactly that. I doubled down. I kept kept my um, my rod in the water. It's like, well, what can I learn from this experience? How can I make sure that that when this is over, I'm more Mars ready than I was at the start? And so, you know, I started learning even more about what my body could be facing if I go to Mars. What could I change? What could I alter? One of my hobbies is I'm a biohacker. Um, what could I biohack with little access to the, the usual tech that I would? Uh, so, yeah, it was, I really doubled down during that time. No pause. Tell us about the biohack because we're actually not talking to Diane version one right now, right? <laughs> we, are, we actually are now in a conversation with Diane 2.0. 2.0, that's correct. <laughs> How do we upgrade ourselves? How did you define that transition? Yeah, well, I applied a very scientific sort of method to it and, and I'm not going to be flipping about it. I actually did. I, I call it the scientific method because it really does apply the way you approach anything in science. You know, you get curious about it, you, you examine it, you plan it out, you prototype stuff and you monitor it and you tweak it, et cetera. It's, it's part of design principles as well. And so I, I'd spent all this time, like when I first got shortlisted for Mars, I, I realised how incredibly risky it was. The chance of losing my hearing, vision, um, becoming a brittle, so brittle bone to be worse than osteopenia, uh, just phenomenal, phenomenal impacts on my body. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound very attractive, but I really want to go to Mars. So how do I make sure those things don't happen? So I started working on changing my physiology. I started trying to work out, well, that's what could happen what else might happen if I took a different approach? I first looked at the things that might impact on that, like say bone mass is a really good example. So usually, normally, people lose about, or women in particular, lose between 1% to 3% of their bone mass year on year as we hit you know, 40s, 50s and so forth. And I'm 52. And at that time, I was in my mid-40s and I was told, oh, well, that's, you're going to go through menopause, you'll lose up to maybe 20% of your bone mass. That's just life. You're a woman. Too bad. Uh, and that is also what happens to astronauts. They lose 20% of their bone mass in six months in space. Something that takes women you know, five years to lose, they lose in six months. Phenomenal. And I thought, hang on a sec, I'm both of those things potentially. <laughs> woman, astronaut, that's really not a good picture. So I learned a lot about what breaks bone down and why that might be happening. And, and I started to, to work with brought in specialists. And I know you guys are big on this too. Like even though you might be phenomenally successful in whatever you do, you always bring in experts to make sure you can be the best and really can optimize stuff. So I brought in an endocrinologist. I, I worked with guys from overseas. I, I looked to research the scientific evidence and that as well and started playing around with new tech. And I've managed to, instead of, having my bone mass decrease year on year, for the last probably four years, it's been increasing about 2% every year, which is phenomenal. And I'm now I have a, 
my back in particular is you couldn't break it with a stovey pole. It's stronger than a 20-year-old's. Oh, that's a telephone pole for anyone that's not from South Australia. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I used to live in South Australia for a number of years, so a stovey pole is a, a telephone pole. So, yes, you could. I've got a very, very strong back. It's not very breakable. I remember you and I having a chat about this, Diane, because yeah. I had the same thing with an autoimmune disease that makes you osteoporotic. Yeah, right, yeah. They say the same thing. You've got to take this, this medication and... And then you read about it and you're like, well, if you bear weights and use your bones and put some put some pressure on them and make them work. Yeah. And it was literally 18 months, doubled my bone density. And the endocrinologist that I was seeing was like, have you been taking the medication? I said, no, I didn't take any of it. I've just been lifting heavy weights at the gym. Yeah. You would, that was a long time ago. Obviously, I don't look like that now. <laughs> but uh, certainly at the time, it, uh, it made a big difference. Absolutely. But if, if you hadn't have researched that and, and worked out for yourself, what's going on here and just trusted one person's perspective, you would have been on a pill potentially that may have worked a bit but also may not have. And not that I've got anything against medication. Medication is invaluable when it's needed. Absolutely. I do not question that at all. Modern med- I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a long time. Absolutely critical but fit for purpose. What do we need? Yeah. One of the things, Dan, that piqued my interest is uh, a couple of years ago, uh, about a year ago, I think it was maybe now, I went to an optometrist because I'm having to hold things a little bit further back now that I'm you know, 46 and stuff. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's just what happens. Your eyes wear out, you know, and, and this is just what happens. So now you need glasses. And I'm like, but not every day I need mm. glasses. And I find when I wear the glasses, I need to wear the glasses more. Correct. So I've avoided wearing them for you. probably worn them 10 times when I'm really ultra mm. tired or something just to get through a period of time. But you mentioned there something about biohacking, you know, your eyesight and stuff like that. I mean, any tips for those of us that are in this uh, stage of life where we're starting to have to hold, get a, like a selfie stick to be able to read a book? <laughs> well, some people might take the, the, the short way and uh, take the, a photograph with their phone and make it larger. When that's useful, but it's a it's, yeah, it's good, it's good for, a for a menu, but that's probably about it. <laughs> this is something which can be reversed over time. And, and I think people forget that our eyes are also that the focal length that changes for our vision to be clear is muscular. So it's a bit like what Boo was doing to increase his bone mass. He realized it's like, oh, I've got to lift heavy stuff. I've got to do some things that create force, that create tension, that that push things to change. If we don't give our muscles or our bones or whatever a reason to change, to adapt, they don't have to. So exactly what you were doing there, Sean, by by not wearing your glasses all the time, it actually will force your eyes to try and work a bit harder. Uh, and there are little techniques you can do, definitely vision, visionary stuff in distance. We're often in rooms and we, you know, we're told, oh, look away from your computer, look away from your computer every 90 minutes or whatever. But don't just look across the room. The room is still only a couple of metres away, the side of the room. Look out a window. Look at something which you know is probably about a kilometre away try and trace the outside of a tree that is that far away. You won't be able to do it straight away. But over time, if you do that regularly, you'll find you'll be able to see things. Your muscles will have a greater range of motion. There's some imperial data around that through pilot selection. Like they know that if they recruit rural kids that come through, their eyesight's always markedly better than city kids because their whole life is out and looking on the horizon and trying to find things. And so, yeah, that's a... The biohack is a. We need to we need to like schedule about another rack of about five podcasts, mate. And I think we'll be able to. 
Episode one, biohacking your eyesight. Episode two, biohacking and bad attitude. Episode three, biohacking your ego or whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. I think we've got we we uh, have the capability to learn learn so much here. So, Diane, what? Yeah, like you've you've obviously facilitated a lot of change and transition in your yeah, life. Yeah. And for a lot of people that feel like they're in a rut or can't quite get there, what are some of your your hacks there in terms of what holds people back and and what's on the other side when you break through that wall? Discomfort is the thing that holds people back. And this is completely neurological, literally neurological. It's particular hormones that are released. Acetylcholine is one of them and dopamine, for example. These are the things that drive us to try and do something new and the acetylcholine. And as well as that, there's the adrenaline. So you've got those things together between if you can get your, your body to release those three things together, you're going to try something new and you'll feel an agitation because that's the adrenaline. But if you sit with it for 10 to 15 minutes, you get to a place where you're in more of a flow state. Mm-hmm. So, and that's anything, absolutely anything. The body does that for adaptation. Absolutely. You will focus much better if you can push through those first 10 to 15 minutes of something, whether it's study, whether it's going to learn something, playing an instrument, warm up exercise. Like I, one of the things I learned to do during COVID lockdowns has been to, to draw. Um, and it's one of the things we, you build into that is the warm up period. This is the time where you can draw your most crap picture that you'll draw ever in your life. Because it's okay because you're going through the discomfort. It's like, oh, that doesn't look like an arm. It's certainly not an eye. It, just go through that stuff because, like, it's okay. You'll get through that bit. You'll get through that bit and then there it is. So just persist. Yeah, Actually, I have not heard it communicated that way, what you're saying. It's like I've heard lots of things about people saying overcome. You've got to go through discomfort. You've got to push through. But understanding it on the level of, of what our bodies are releasing to support learning of something mm. new and no one ever said learning something new is comfortable but if you know that if you stick it out for 15 10 15 maybe 20 yeah. minutes then on the other side of that is where that growth is really going to start mm. to happen once you've moved past that that makes it really tangible that and i've and I've, I've heard something before someone actually said i just jump remind it now they said set a timer for 30 minutes and always do it for at least 30 minutes and i think they're referring to the same thing that you, by that time you're past the discomfort the, the biggest, the peak of discomfort and now getting into a state, more state of flow where you're, you're more receptive to learn. So that's a great, you know, a great little hack again, which is awesome. And it fits in nicely, that 30-minute thing you're talking about there, Sean, fits with the, the body's natural daily rhythms. We've, we've heard of these things probably called circadian rhythms. People have heard of that. That's like the 24-hour cycle our body goes through for sleep and wake and all of that. But there's another rhythm that we have each day that happens every 90 minutes of the day. It's called ultradian rhythms. And these these are like almost like mini versions, peak trough, peak trough, peak trough every 90 minutes. And so you'll find if you're sitting working, after about an hour and a half, you're really like struggling, really struggling. If you're like, no, I'll just keep flogging through, through this. I'll keep working on this, this report or whatever it is. Mm. Got to get up and move out of it. Then come back and you'll come back in after about 15 minutes of doing something totally different. Come back in and you'll come in when it's still going to be at struggle time. Once again, push through that, and that's the body getting into that. Oh, it's struggle, struggle, and I'm in zone again. Mm. I think a little bit of a little bit of circadian rhythm theory as well as it's a it's actually a 25 hour rhythm that we cram into 24. Yeah, which is why we so true. Which is which is why we feel tired all the time because we're trying to fit 25 hours of what we want into 24, and why we always 
when we're pushing the clock forward on travel, it's easier to acclimatize than when we push it back. It makes me think though, Boo, about we're, how we're always trying to squish that extra hour into stuff. Yeah. Why don't we try and take less? Like, well, try and do less in the time. Yeah. I've definitely found that works. You know, going from 80 to 100 hours a week for over seven years, being nearly 20 kilos heavier in weight, having clinical depression, like all that stuff all at once, which was not a great period of my life. As I say, I won't change it because it's made me who I am today and it's given me a lot of learnings and tools. Yeah, but, but- I'll tell you what, mate, geez, you're, you're so much harder to get hold of these days, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, but g- giving yourself more space to what I found is that the harder you push, the less effective you yeah. are. And if you can pull back, you're going to be more effective in those periods of time. And I think one of the things that, and I've seen this a lot in, in my inner circle group working directly with business owners, it's such a common thing. It's like, oh, I'm you know, putting this thing off. I'm procrastinating on this. I'm not doing that. And it's that perception that this thing is going to be hard. And I think it's not actually what you're saying is what little kind of association has come up here. It's not just the thing that they're doing is going to be hard. I think we're preempting the feeling that's going to happen when we try and do this thing that's new and we want to run away Absolutely from it. Absolutely right. And then when you get to, and I did, I was doing it the other day. There was a thing I was putting, I had some emotionally personal kind of stuff and I'd put it off for about three months. Oh, I'll do that Monday or well, maybe <laughs> Thursday next week, or maybe the next week. And I kept putting it off. And uh, my partner's just like, no, nah, you're going to do it and don't come out of your office till you're finished. <laughs> I was like, oh, took me 45 minutes. And I came out and went, how was that even remotely difficult? It was the feeling that I had about the difficulty of going through it. Did it in 45 minutes, walked out and went, I just feel like a knucklehead now because I could have done it three months ago without causing myself all this anxiety or stress and guilt of not doing it and of pushing it back because I don't generally do that with with anything. I'll be like, right, that needs to be done this week. Get it done. Bang. It's done. It's out. This is one of those things that was just, it had some emotional attachment to it and it was like, had some deep stuff going on and I knew how I'd feel starting it. And I did, I felt it for that first 15 or 20 minutes. But after that, it was just like, the rest of it went in no time. Every time I'm on the the podcast with our guests, I'm always learning something new and new associations. And I think that's the thing. It's despite the discomfort, if you know it needs to be done, you need to do it anyway. Yeah. And that's usually what drives me to, to do something new. If I feel a bit uncomfortable about it, it's like, okay, there's probably such a reward. So was that like running ultra marathons, extreme distance cycling, <laughs> yes. sailing in gale storms with tall ships and all these other fun stuff that it sounds like you've done in your spare time whilst training to go to Mars? <laughs> Absolutely. As Jocko so eloquently puts it, embrace the suck, right? <laughs> yes, embrace the suck. Because I don't know. I don't want to be there, you know, whatever your philosophy is. I don't want to be the pearly gates or the, the last days and go, well, you know, I got up and went to bed every day, whatever. I want to like sit there and go, wow, that was a fascinating time, wasn't it? I'm so <laughs> pleased I was here for that. Yeah, so, yeah. so what that means though, I know if I, if I want that sort of end day experience, I've got to push through the stuff that I know is going to be rubbish sometimes. Absolutely. Like you said there, Sean, you know that after you push through the bit that you know is uncomfortable and painful, that that's where the, everything opens up. It's also the reward. The reward comes at that time. You feel the reward. I'm sure there's dopamine hits and mm-hmm. all the rest of it and yep. you feel like you've achieved something. And I think that's what you're saying too is that thing about if you get to the end of your life and you're looking back, you're not going to regret the things you did. No. You're going to regret the things you didn't do yeah. that you weren't game enough to do or that you there was too much discomfort to actually move through and do them. And I think that's that's a big – I love that philosophy. It's a big part of you know, my philosophy on life as well is is – not to live with regrets for one, mm. but also 
look at those things. That, and I myself haven't done an ultra marathon, but I ran Sydney Marathon uh, once, only once, long story, but um, yeah, 5 hours and 17 minutes later and feet that were twice the size as usual, I still finished it. <laughs> uh, I couldn't walk for two weeks afterwards, but I still managed to finish it. I'm never going to do it again. But I put myself into that discomfort. I did the training for it. And I uh, didn't realize that, you know, flying back 40 hours beforehand gave me DVT and caused all sorts of medical problems that I didn't realize I had. But, you know, the, the point is that there were things there that I never, ever thought I'd do. Something my, mate, my mate's like, mate, we've done the, the half marathon. Let's do the marathon. I'm like, sure, why not? When is it? It's in eight weeks. I'm like, okay, I've only ever run a half marathon before, but surely it can't be that bad. And, you know, just said yes and then tried to figure it out, figure it out afterwards. Well, and that, I think that's the approach. Say yes. And then work out, is this feasible or is it not feasible? How do I do it? Doesn't mean you can't then change your mind too. We have the capacity when we have more information to go, you know, this maybe is not the right time for this. Mm. And don't say no to yourself straight up. Allow yourself to take that step and do the work and then know that's, that's a no for now. And for now, that's the thing. It doesn't always have to be forever. Yeah, that's great. Love it. Pushing those boundaries, and I think when you get to a certain point in life, you just realize, I've lived a good life now. Like I mm. I don't have anything I really regret doing, and I don't have anything I feel like I don't want to do. It's a nice place to end up. And I think when you live that life where you define success on your own terms, you're able to give back in a way that's really positive, I think. Yeah. Like I love the name and the philosophy of your podcast as well, The Few, and you know what is it? mean and I've thought about it quite a bit was it mean to be someone who's part of the few or to strive to be in the few and for me and it's probably something you might ask later but I'm sorry I'm going to jump the gun because it fits in so nicely here it's around how by realizing that we may be few but through that we could become many and so by focusing on what we do so well bringing our best to whatever we do all the stuff that Sean talked about before as well earlier about then all of the effects that it has on other people. What can we do so that the many grow by what we do individually? I'm a big believer in that, that you, know, you can change the world one person at a time. Yeah. I think that's the only way to do it deeply, properly, permanently, is to have an impact on somebody else and that person has the snowball effect of impacting other people and that's huge. And clearly, you know, clearly you've learnt a heck of a lot in so many amazing adventures and, and uh, things that you've done in your life so far. If you were to take the less, some of the lessons, you know, what, what are the key lessons from that? Go back to maybe that 13, 14, 15 year old version of yourself living out in a community in, in NT mm. and give yourself a lesson or a couple of those lessons that you've learned. What would you go back and say to yourself? Probably two things. And the first is it's going to be okay. Cause as a, as a girl, as a teenage girl, and I'm sure you know, teenage boys went through the same sort of stuff for their own way. Being part of a community or a group or whatever means a lot. People don't want to feel so isolated. And I did live in a lot of isolation. And so as a, as a young girl, I, I, I didn't know if I'd ever have friends or if I'd ever be able to do anything that was of value in the world. And I, so to distrust, I would say, Diane, it's okay, distrust the journey. It's going to be okay. You will have incredible friends. You will get to do the most amazing things you never could dream about. Um, you may even get to go to Mars. Who knows? Just trust the journey and do the things that you dream about because they don't have to sit on a shelf. You can make them happen. They are all realizable. So I'd then tell that 
little Diane, that probably 20 year old Diane was given a, you, you'll be given a book by your grandfather called The Richest Man in Babylon. And it was by a guy named George Carlson or Clausen or something. Uh, anyway, but I remember my grandpa gave me this book when I was around 1920. And it was around, you know, how to invest money and, and, and very simply in a fable. And the philosophy is you give 10% to yourself of anything you earn. So put that aside for yourself first before you pay any of your debtors, before you pay anything else, um, which is good philosophy in business, sure. Make sure you invest in yourself first. But what I would like to tell 13-year-old Diane, 14-year-old Diane, 15-year-old Diane, invest in yourself first. Work out what 10% you need to give to yourself every day of whatever it is, of time to yourself, of energy to yourself, of love to yourself, of connection with others, what is it that you need to grow? Give yourself 10% of that before you give to others. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. I love that. Like that's the best advice you can give to someone that's young because 10% of your whole earning life is an inordinate amount of time. Mm -hmm. Awesome, Diane 2.0. That was a really (laughs) super insightful conversation and you've obviously got such a great depth of humanity. It exudes out of you in in the conversations and I think the world and the few are very blessed to have, have you on the team. So thanks so much for sharing your time with Sean and I today. Really appreciate it, Diane. Thanks, Boo. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be part of the many. <laughs> Thanks so much. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.